Well, good morning. Um, my name is Nate Rutman. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to add my welcomes to Pastor Rob's. Um, it's wonderful and, and a really an amazing thing to gather with all of you uh, in the presence of God. And um, I think as we work our way through the Word of God, I, my hope is that that becomes more and more stunning to us um, as we go through uh, his, his Word to us this morning. Um, we have uh, spoken to God both in song and now in prayer, and now we get the privilege of hearing what he has spoken to us uh, through his word, uh, which has been recorded and preserved for us and is still true today, as true today as the day it was written. Uh, for several months here at Providence Church, we've marked off one Sunday a month to focus on a specific aspect of God's character And our goal in these times is to better understand and behold the God that we worship so that our love for him grows and our trust, our our faith in him, the the amount that we are willing to lean upon him and what he promises to us, that would be strengthened. We would grow in our faith. And of all of the ways that God is described in the Bible, there is one word that so uniquely defines him that it actually becomes a name of for God. Prophets, psalmists, kings, apostles, they all refer to God as, quote, the Holy One. He is holy. One of the central things that God wants us to know about Him is that He is holy. Now, in in our day, the word holy is used in many different and uh, fairly unhelpful ways. Uh, Even outside of religious contexts, maybe at work you hear about a lofty corporate goal that someone might refer to as a holy grail. It's it's the North Star. It's where we're headed. Or if someone thinks they are just better than others, they have a holier-than-thou attitude, we might say. Even my my three-year-old will go around uh, saying, holy guacamole, Um, right? She uses that word, holy. But in the end, these sayings aren't really that helpful when we seek to understand what the Bible means when it says that God is the Holy One, when it says that God is holy. What does that mean? And so in order to answer that question, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, and Elisa is going to come and read that for us in just a moment, verses 1 through 8. And these verses are one of the most vivid depictions of God in the Old Testament, if not the Bible uh, as a whole. And as you'll hear, his holiness is at center stage of this vision. Uh, Then second, we'll hear from Leviticus chapter 16. Rob will read that for us, which will describe what it meant for Old Testament priests to draw near to a holy God. We'll then kind of turn over to the New Testament. We'll hear uh, Jen will read from Mark 1 about how Jesus Christ, as he arrived and started to minister, was called the Holy One of God. And then lastly, we'll hear from Ephesians 5 as Pat reads how Jesus' death and resurrection, now wonder of wonders, makes his followers holy and blameless. And so uh, let's hear from the Lord now. Uh, Lisa, could you come up and begin reading for us? Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil." And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Mark chapter 1. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Uh, Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25-27. So what we want to do is we want to consider from these texts what it means that God is holy, holy, holy. Now we'll, we'll kind of explore that uh, question in three different uh, areas or topics. First, what we'll do is we'll kind of zoom out from any one text and just try to define what holiness is in general. What, what does it mean uh, for anything to be holy and what does it mean for God to be holy? And then what we'll do is we'll zoom into the vision that Isaiah Uh, has and ask, well, what does it mean for Isaiah to encounter now a holy God? What does it mean when someone comes in the presence of this holy God? And then we'll, we'll end our time with seeing how all of this connects with the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, and so, so that's kind of like our threefold plan for this morning. Holiness in general, then Isaiah's vision, and then what does this have to do with Jesus? So let's start with just holiness in general. Uh, what is Holiness. Before, because before we get to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, we need to understand what that word holy meant to ancient Jews. What does it mean if, if one of them went around using the word holy? What would that signify? What would it imply? When Isaiah heard, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, what did that mean to him? Well, many Christians associate holiness with moral purity, with with doing right things. And that's certainly part of the idea, but holiness goes far beyond just right behaviors. Um, If you're looking for a biblical word to fit that description, that's generally righteousness. Righteousness is doing right things. Holiness is something that's related but a little different. Literally, the Hebrew word for holy means separate or set apart. Uh, the meaning is not merely spatial, like, like an island might be set apart from the mainland. That's not really the point. Rather, holy denotes separation due to being a higher quality or being special in some way. Uh, a holy thing is distinct or separate from lesser common things. And there are, there are plenty of examples how special things even today are kept separate and away from common things. 
Um, if, if you came into my house around Christmas time, uh, we have uh, dishes, china, that's been passed down through the family that we pull out only around the holidays, only for the month of December. And if you come into my house today, it's boxed away, t- uh, secure so that nothing breaks, and it's separated from the cereal bowls and the dinner plates and our normal silverware. Perhaps you have uh, something similar. Or if we think of, of ladies with, who might have a prized diamond necklace, well, they're, they're probably not keeping that in the same place as their kind of everyday jewelry or bracelets that they might wear, right? The, the, the star of a movie, well, they often prepare for shooting in a, in a place that's separate. They have their own dressing room or trailer that's away from the crew or maybe the extras and where they would prepare. Uh, when traveling, if you flew on vacation, uh, I guarantee you did not fly in the same plane as the President of the United States, right? He has his own separate plane, his own separate vehicle for when he needs to travel. And, and the point is that, well, the china is separate from the cereal bowls, the diamonds are separate from the common jewelry, the star is separate from the film crew, and the president is separate from you and me because that separation is a sign of higher quality or value or importance. And that's the idea behind this word, holy. Holy things are separate, they are distinct because they are special or more important or more valuable than common or unholy things. And so when we take that idea to God, what we realize is that God is holy because he is separate, he is distinct from everything and everyone else. He is higher, more valuable than anything else. The beauty and purity of God's power and wisdom, his love of all that he is, puts him in a league of his own. And that's what the Bible means when it says that God is holy. He has no rivals. There is no no one in his peer group. He is separate. He is distinct. He is holy. Now, if you were a Jewish man or woman living in Isaiah's day, you would have experienced a very poignant reminder of God's separateness, of his holiness, every time you went to worship at the temple. The temple was not quite like our church buildings. The temple had a very particular uh, architecture and organization that communicated at its core that God was holy, that he was separate. The, the temple began with a large outer court. This was an outdoor area, and this is where the Jewish nation would gather for worship. This is where their, their festivals or, or convocations were held. When they came together before the Lord, they would stand in this large outdoor space. And yet this outdoor space had a huge wall around it that, that separated it from the rest of the city. And so as, a, as an ancient Jew, as you stepped into worship, it was crystal clear when you moved from the city, from, from the, the, the city of the people, into God's space. There, there were gates, there was this high wall, it was separate. But, but then inside this outer court... There was a a smaller inner court. This was also outside, but this is where the priests would offer sacrifices for the people. This is where atonement happened and other rituals happened. Not everybody in the outer court would enter into this 
inner court. And it again had a wall around it. It was distinct. It was separate. Now inside this inner court was the temple building itself. And this building was referred to as God's house. It was, it was thought about where the presence of God dwelt among the Hebrews. We, we, if you read the Old Testament, there's a very particular time where a cloud descends, this glory cloud of d- denoting God's presence, and it fills the temple, meaning God is here. This is where God is going to dwell. And this, this building was set apart from the courts. The, the larger room inside, the, the bulk of this building was called the holy place. And you could think about it almost as, as like God's waiting room. But, but this waiting room, it was made of cypress, the finest woods. It was overlaid with gold. There were intricate carvings of beauty all around the room. The aroma of burnt incense filled this room. Special bread was made for the priests every Sabbath. The room was filled with a mix of natural light and, and beautiful candlelight. And, and the reason for that is that the physical beauty, the, what you would see, the smells and its purity, its richness of this holy place were to be a clue that those who entered it were getting closer to the Holy One. Now, only priests could enter this space. And they could only enter it after performing certain rituals that made them separate from common people. They had to wear certain clothes. They had to have a, a, a state of cleanness, a ceremonial cleanliness. And then they could minister in this space. But the holy place wasn't the last area in the temple. There was one other area inside of the holy place still that was called the Holy of Holies. And this room was remarkable. It contained two gold statues of these giant angelic beings called cherubim. And between these two cherubim was the Ark of the Covenant, This is where the Ten Commandments were put, the stone tablets that signified the the very beginning of God's relationship with his people. And above the ark was what was called the mercy seat. This is where God sat, so to speak. And so this holy of holies, it was like God's chamber. It It was like his bedroom. This is where he rested, where he dwelt. And there was only one person out of the entire nation who could enter the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest. And even that high priest, he could only enter it once a year. Now we heard from Leviticus 16 some of the steps required to approach God in his chamber. You see, even the high priest couldn't simply ring the doorbell or waltz into God's space. Entering God's presence, it's it's not like meeting with anyone else. He is exalted. He is high above everything and everyone. He is holy. And so the holy of holies... And the the holy place outside of it, the temple itself, 
was just a constant reminder to Isaiah and all the people of the day that God is holy. He is separate. He does not dwell right beside you as if a best friend would. No, he's, he's in his place because he is holy. Now, I think this begs the question of, was all this separation necessary? I, because I think to our modern sensibilities, right, we, we read that and we think, okay, well, God's not out in the city. He's not even out in the outer courts. He's not dwelling in the inner courts or even the holy place. That's just the waiting room. He's in this inner place, and only one person can go in there once a year. I mean, if I said that to you, <laughs> if, if I said, look, church, um, I'm going in my house, um, Don's the only person who can come into my house, and only once a year. And he's got to wear this special clothing. He's got to go through these rituals. I mean, you would think, this Nate guy is a total snob. Who does he think he is? That's the way our modern minds think. How can anyone, even God, say that he is so special that only certain people can approach at certain times in certain ways? How is that Okay. And, and the reason that that's not just okay, because it's not just okay, it's actually necessary. The reason that's necessary is because holy and unholy by nature cannot mix. It's not that they shouldn't mix, they cannot mix. Now, to help us see this, let me just give you two illustrations. We're, we're going to talk about home property values. And we're going to talk about the sun. Okay, you might think those don't have a lot to do in common, but they help us understand this concept of of why separation from the holy is necessary. Everyone here who has bought a house or even uh, has thought about buying a house knows that the neighborhood in which a house exists has an impact upon its value. Um, And so if you take a million-dollar mansion that exact same million-dollar mansion is worth one thing if it's out in the hills, the countryside, separate from itself, or if it's in a community of other multi-million-dollar mansions. But what happens if you, if you take that mansion, that very same building, and put it in a neighborhood of $150,000 homes? Property value goes way down because the surroundings of a thing impact the value of a thing. In a similar way, the reason a common person can't just waltz into the presence of God is because that in so doing, we would mock the very value of God. Our very presence would be a statement that his value is lower. That he is not really so special. That he is not very exalted because he is not set apart. I can just go in and talk to him like I would talk to anyone else. You see, the Jews understood this, and that's the reason why God's space was separate. It required special status to draw near to him because he himself had special status. He himself was holy. Now, follow me here, because God's not a mansion. God is God. And because God is God, his value can't actually decrease. Uh, If he would have a status lower than he is, he would cease to be God. And so when a commoner comes into the presence of God, the real threat is not to the value of God, but now to the commoner. 
And this is why we heard twice in Leviticus 16, all of these special rituals for the high priest, for Aaron, were done, quote, so that he might not die when he entered God's presence. In other words, God is so holy that should a commoner come into his presence, God's holiness would not lessen. Rather, the commoner would be destroyed. He, he cannot be there. And he would perish. And so this isn't God being a snob. It's just the natural law of what it means to be a holy God. If that sounds harsh to you, consider our second illustration. Consider the sun. The sun is, is really good. Uh, many of you have taken summer vacations. I, I doubt many of you got really excited to go somewhere dark, cold, and gloomy. Uh, we want to go where it's warm and sunny, right? Because the sun is good. But the sun is so good, it is so bright and so hot that it will blind you if you look directly at it, Right? And if you somehow boarded a rocket and tried to touch the sun with your hand, enter into the sun space, you would burn up before you even got close. Now, is the sun being a snob? Well, no, the sun is just being the sun, right? And so it is with God. A holy God cannot mix with common or non-holy things because the common will die and perish in the presence of a holy God, just simply because of who he is, of how high and exalted he is. We cannot bear him. So when the Bible tells us that God is holy, 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 it means that God by his nature is far above, far exceeding, separate from everything else. He is in a league to his own to such a high degree that lesser things cannot even come into his presence and live. That's what it means for God to be holy. Now, let's, let's, with that definition in mind, perhaps now we're a little better prepared to turn to our main text and, and look at what Isaiah saw and look at the wonder of what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. If you, if you closed your Bible, can you open it back up to Isaiah chapter 6 and read with me verses 1 through 4. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, we began our, our time of worship this morning by hearing from Exodus 15.11, which said that God is majestic in holiness. I submit to you that that's exactly what Isaiah was seeing here. He saw the Lord seated on a throne. That's majesty. 
and he was high and lifted up. That's holiness. He was majestic in holiness. Isaiah saw the train of God's robe, and, and the word the word for the, that comes across in our English translation as train is literally the hem. I mean, it's just the bottom part of God's robe filled the temple. Now, now maybe in your own Bible reading, you've gotten to that part uh, in the Old Testament where it gives you uh, the dimensions of the temple. And um, you, you're, you're reading that and you're wondering, why is all that here? Well, one of the reasons that's here is so that we can visualize this scene before us, right? We know how big the temple was, and I compared it to this room. The, the temple building was about three of these rooms wide. So if you, if you took that wall and maybe blew that out to like the other side of the courtyard, and it was roughly three of these rooms deep. So if you took the back wall, maybe to like the houses across the alley, now you're talking about the dimensions of the temple building itself. Three of these rooms wide, three deep. And, and the bottom layer of God's robes filled that space. I mean, as, as Isaiah approached, he, he would have been dwarfed by God's toes if they were visible, right? Like God's little toe was bigger at, than Isaiah's. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine coming in the door and seeing Something like that. The, the roof of the temple was probably about twice as high as the ceiling of this room. And so you can imagine as, as Isaiah stood and looked where the roof line would be, what, maybe he's seeing God's shins? I mean, this is a startling sight. We as Christians, uh, we sometimes talk about being in the presence of God as, as a good thing, but I would submit to you perhaps a lighter thing than Isaiah thought about. You know, we might say like, oh man, in the singing today, I just experienced the presence of God. Or, or I was praying yesterday in my room and I experienced the presence of God. Well, can you imagine experiencing the presence of God by showing up to what Isaiah saw? He's seeing the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, enthroned, and he is massive. There is no way in Isaiah's mind that anything is stronger than this God, that anything is mightier than this God, bigger than this God, more fearful than this God. And as Isaiah looked up further still, it says, Above the throne were these odd angelic beings, odd to us at least, called seraphim. And they flew around God on his throne. And, and even these seraphim had to cover themselves in his presence. Even they could not just waltz up to God, look at him with unveiled eyes. They, they covered their bodies. They covered their faces. And, and the only words that escaped their lips were holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And, and these weren't man-sized beings. I mean, they must have been massive because their very voice shook the thresholds. I mean, the temple was laid with these huge stones. Not something easily shaken. 
And yet the voice of these beings, as they declared God's holiness, shook the whole place. And so, as Isaiah came into the presence of God, it was literally a terrifying sight. If you would have been there, you would have been scared out of your mind because of how holy and great God is. And that's exactly what Isaiah feels. He enters this vision of God's holiness and the first thought in his mind is, I should not be here. I should not be in the presence of so great a being. We know that because in verse 5 he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man, now he's going to tell us why in his mind he should not be there. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the source of Isaiah's terror is this this juxtaposition, this distance between the greatness of the God he sees and his own state before such a God. Isaiah knows he is not holy. He does not have this set-apart status. He is not marked off in, in um, value and, and status far above everything like God is. No, he is the very opposite. He is unclean. And that's a word that refers not to physical dirt or filth, but, but an impurity of heart. Later down in verse 7, and we heard in the reading from Leviticus 16, another word for this is, is sin. It is Isaiah's sin, his uncleanliness, that, that makes his own presence in the midst of God dangerous. And so Isaiah is just not merely common, he is defiled at the core of his being. Isaiah and his people are completely unfit for God. Unlike the the angels who, who would hide their face and cover their feet and yet speak in the presence of God, Isaiah is saying, I I am a man of even unclean lips. I can't even speak in his presence. And I come from a people that are the same. Now, as, as if we were watching a Hollywood depiction of this scene in Isaiah 6, I, th- I think this is where the camera would really slow down, right? Time would come to a standstill. The, the, the soundtrack would fade into the background. And the silence and stillness would mount and, and draw out this question, what is going to become of Isaiah? What, what will become of him before such a majestic and holy being? I mean, there's a kind of climax here that, that is a cliffhanger as Isaiah states his uncleanliness before 
such a God. And if you were living as a Jew in 700 BC when Isaiah lived, what happened next is completely unimaginable. At the moment where Isaiah's death seems certain, instead, we read verses 6 through 8. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go with us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. What happens in only two verses is that Isaiah, the man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips, finds himself face to face with a God who is holy, holy, holy. And yet Isaiah survives and leaves that scene not a corpse, but as a commissioned prophet of the Holy One of Israel. How did that happen? His lips, which were once unclean, could not even speak in the presence of God, will now, throughout the entire book of Isaiah, speak on behalf of the Holy One. How does that happen? Well, the coal that touched Isaiah's lips does indeed signify a death. A death needed to happen for Isaiah to survive the presence of a holy God. The the thing is, it's not Isaiah's death. The the, the altar in which this coal came from in the temple was used for animal sacrifice. And the most significant animal sacrifice in temple worship for the Jews was a sacrifice of atonement, where the animal received the penalty for someone's sin, and the sinner was set free. They were made clean. And this is exactly what the seraphim says. He he takes the coal to Isaiah's lips and he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. But here's the rub. No one in Isaiah's time would have fathomed that any amount of sacrifice could make someone so, clo- so clean and so pure that they could actually see God face to face and live. All those sacrifices, they happened outside the Holy of Holies. They happened outside the holy place, outside of God's chamber, and yet the person was pronounced clean and went away. Nowhere in the Old Testament does someone uh, offer an animal sacrifice and then just waltz into the Holy of Holies. Not a category. And here is Isaiah in the very presence of the holy God and this coal from the altar lets him survive his encounter with God. Isaiah could somehow stand before a holy God as an instrument of his holiness instead of an offense to his holiness. He hadn't gone through any of the purification rites of the high priest. He wasn't clothed in any of those special garments that we heard read about that Aaron had to put on. Here he was himself, plain old Isaiah, and now an instrument 
of a holy God. This makes more sense as we connect Isaiah's story to the coming of Jesus. As we turn the page from Isaiah's vision into the, to Jesus' ministry, we find some astounding things right off the bat. Now we heard from Mark chapter 1 how while Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, a demon-possessed man speaks to Jesus. Um, this happened for some reason with quite regularity through Jesus' uh, ministry. It doesn't happen at any point in the Old Testament. It's like as soon as Jesus is on the scene, demons are just everywhere. They're speaking to him and, and they're, they're pronouncing these things. And so this demon says this. Do you remember from Mark chapter 1 verse 24? He says, he looks at Jesus and he says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Because I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Okay, so a few astounding things right there off the bat, right? Number one, evidently demons are better at spotting holiness than people are. Because we're told that the people who were all around Jesus wondered at what was happening. What is this, they say. But the demon has no such questions. He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And so he sees holiness right away, does he not? But now here's astounding fact number two. The demon, like people in Isaiah's day, cannot fathom that people can be cleansed enough to stand in the presence of a holy one and live. Because the only explanation the demon has for Jesus' coming is, have you come to destroy? Is that why you're here? Because you've shown up, and the only category I have in my mind is that destruction is coming. Now that a holy one has come. And astounding fact number three is that the demon puts himself and these everyday normal people in the same boat. He says, what do you have to do with us? Now, there's only one demon there, right? We're only told of one demon. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The plural refers to the people. And so what we find is that demons and and sinners, demons and everyday people, demons and and anyone who has wandered from God, which is all of us, we're in the same boat before a holy God. And yet, the reality, and this might be the most astounding fact of all about this holy one, Jesus Christ, is that he came not to destroy This is Mark chapter 1. There are 15 other chapters after Mark. He didn't destroy. Like Isaiah, these people leave the presence of a holy one unscathed. The holy one, when he could have, when he should have, when, when the natural principles of holiness... Remember the sun, right? You get too close to the sun, you're just burned up. Natural principles of holiness, unholy things come close to the holy God, they're just burned up, they're incinerated, they're gone, dead dead to rights as they stand. God, Jesus in his coming is is like redefining the natural laws of, of what holiness is and how it works because he came not to destroy but to 
offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice for human sin. You, you see, the coals, the, the, the coal that touched Isaiah's lips, it was not a coal from an animal sacrifice. Although Jesus' earthly ministry came 700 years after Isaiah, it's as if the altar with purifying coals in Isaiah's vision was the very cross of Jesus Christ. Because there, Jesus laid himself down, as it were, and offered himself up as the payment, the the atonement, the, the sacrifice that was burned up for our sin so that our sins were laid upon him And his holiness could be transferred to us. That coal that touched Isaiah's lips, it came from the foot of Calvary. And and the point of all this, the the idea that, that, that Jesus would come not as a destroyer, but as a one who now can make others holy. That, that, that we can now, by simple faith in Him, come into the presence of God, be purified, have holiness, and not be scathed, is that we, we can know this God. Though, though we shouldn't take lightly entering His presence, we can come near him. Now, I, I realize that, that the people, you know, we gather here as a church, we gather here as a community of faith, and we come with different tendencies, we come with different histories, we come with, with just different perspectives in mind. You, you may be here, and maybe the, the grandness and separateness and highness of God's holiness is a little more foreign to you. And perhaps as you think about how you come into God's presence, you would, you would say, well, I come, I, I see now that I tend to come in a more trivial way. I, I don't come with the, the greatness and, and largeness of God in view. Well, well, for you, Isaiah's vision and the coming of Christ, I, I think should cause us to consider more deeply, who is it that you come to? When you, when you pray, and, and perhaps you start those words, dear Heavenly Father, do, do you know what you're saying? You're claiming that, that that massive being that struck terror into the heart of Isaiah is your Heavenly Father. Uh, don't, don't pass over that fact too lightly. But, but if, you, if you come and you are beset that you are a sinner and you struggle with the thought of how could this God love me? How could I truly come into his presence? Okay, maybe he'll let me in the outer court. Maybe he'll even let me in the inner court. Maybe on a good day I could get into his waiting room, but to enter his chamber, I can't do that. Look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Look at what the effect of his sacrifice is. You can come into the Holy of Holies, as it were. 
This is why we're told when Jesus died, there was this huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from that waiting room, the most holy place. And we're told that when Jesus died, that curtain, that no man, no, no mere mortal could rip it. I mean, it was thick. It was heavy. It was meant to keep people out. And as he perished on the cross, paying for our sins, that curtain tore from top to bottom. The, the meaning is, you can come in. If you trust in this sacrifice, you can enter in. You can call that being Father. He will care for you. He will look after you. And the whole reason you can do that is because Christ has made you holy. He has loved you, gave himself for you, that he might make you holy, having cleansed you by the washing of water, by the word that he might present you all to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that you might be holy and without blemish. That's you, if you are Christ's. If you are Christ's. Jesus has taken the definition of holy to new heights. Because in Jesus, God's holiness no longer keeps people out, welcomes people in. We need not cower in fear, we need not stay away, we need not clean ourselves up, we need not perform rituals. If you belong to Jesus, then you, this very day, can hear the words that Isaiah heard. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And we can go to him freely. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to direct our minds and our hearts to prayer this would be a great time to offer up any, any prayers of confession or, or prayers of petition. And then we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. This was a meal. God, God, you can get so close to God, you can share meals with him. That's what the Lord's Supper signifies. That's what Christ has done. And so let's go to him now. I'll begin uh, in prayer, and then you all can, can pray as you felt led. Lord, what a thing it is to be able to come to you. That here in this place, we, unclean sinners, who have strayed from you so many times, Lord, this very week, I have chosen other things above you. I have done the opposite of what you have said. I have not cherished you as the holy God that you are. And yet this moment, because of Christ, you welcome me into your chambers, into your courts. And you do for all of us who come in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We, we lay our sins at your feet, asking your forgiveness. And we uh, boldly, and because of Christ, ask you to move on our behalf and the behalf of the world around us as we pray now. 